This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, CIIS's Nick Walker, one of the leading thinkers in the emerging field of neurodiversity, discusses the link between autism and other manifestations of neurodiversity and creativity. The talk was recorded on October 13, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you. So, neurodiversity is the diversity of human minds and human brains. When I say human minds and human brains, I include the whole uh, human embodiment, all of our embodiment, because our brains, of course, are hooked into our whole bodies via the central nervous system. So really shorthand, we say the diversity of human minds, the diversity of human brains, but that I always take to mean the diversity also of styles of embodiment, and that's one of the key points I want to emphasize tonight, is that diversity is embodied and creativity is embodied, is an embodied state. So there's this thing that I do. I believe that uh, creativity always happens. True creativity, really original uh, contributions to culture or to one's own growth or the growth of one's community. True creativity and true innovation always happen outside the comfort zone. And I also believe in practicing what I preach and embodying and demonstrating what I preach. So always when I do any sort of public speaking, I make sure that I'm outside of my comfort zone. And I look for ways to do that without taking my clothes off. So I never use notes when I speak. And I want to talk about what I do instead and make it very explicit in this talk. One of the things we're looking at in terms of the implications of neurodiversity for creativity is, well, different minds have different perspectives on any given situation, and that creates the opportunity for innovation and original insight. The more different minds you bring to bear on a given problem, a given question, a given situation, the more opportunity there is for someone to come up with an original insight or to come up with a perspective that gives other people original insights. So diversity is a creative resource in that sense for small groups, for communities, for societies, for the species as a whole. And many of the people who succeed as public speakers are very good linguistic thinkers. They're very linear thinkers and they do uh, this wonderful thing where they can you know, make some notes or have a nice PowerPoint presentation or just memorize what they're going to say and they'll take you through a talk in an orderly linear fashion and present it is to you. And I'm actually very good at this when I do academic writing. I mean, I have uh, written some pieces on neurodiversity that really break it down in a very accessible way, I hope. And so I'm told I'm not going to do that here. Um, the way I actually think is not at all linear. I think in three-dimensional fractals, I have no internal dialogue. I don't think in language no internal dialogue, no internal monologue. It blew my mind when I figured out that a lot of people around me actually heard voices in their head when they thought. I was like, oh my God, I 
thought that was like supposed to be a symptom of insanity or something if they're hearing voices. Um, I don't have that, so I don't know what I'm going to say until I say it. And um, it's a challenge for me. It makes my writing process very slow and sometimes my speaking process slow to break things down in a linear fashion because concepts as they exist in my head are these very complex, intricate, three-dimensional, fractal knots. And uh, so what I'm doing, if I'm trying to explain something, is I'm looking at it as this complex 3D fractal shape, and then I'm picking a starting point and saying, well, what do I have to explain in order to make this make sense? How do I take other people through this in a linear fashion that will make it make sense? And of course, uh, from my perspective, I can see the thing from all different angles and keep wanting to jump around and say, oh, and this part here, and this part here, and this part here. But I know that I, if I do that, it will be uh, <clears throat> difficult to follow. So uh, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, skip around tonight. I will uh, jump around. I have the whole talk as a nonlinear shape in my head, and I'm just going to go to whichever parts of it uh, I'm inspired to go to. We're going to do some sudden shifts. And uh, that is not how one does successful public speaking. But it offers the opportunity for me to get to things I might not get to otherwise. And I'm just modeling this so that the talk itself is an example of what I'm talking about. Jack Halberstam, the queer theory writer, has a book called The Queer Art of Failure. That was another shift I just made, by the way. Um, queer Art of Failure, the idea that uh, queering, the process of queering gender and queering one's performance and one's embodiment um, queering how one does one's gender is about failing, daring to fail at heteronormativity, daring to fail at performing normally, and how there's wonderful uh, originality and creativity and surprises and beauty, moments of grace that emerge if we dare to fail at doing things right, at doing things according to social constructs of normal. And so uh, that's uh, part of the queering of gender starts with this, oh, I can't, I can't or I can't stand to perform conventional gender roles. That, it, it hurts me to make myself fit into that, and so I'm failing at conventional gender performance, and instead, I'm gonna do this other thing, and it's sort of like a transition that a lot of people make from just failing at performing binary gender roles to saying, well, heck, I'm gonna take this all the way. I'm going to, uh, I'm gonna queer my gender. I'm gonna really, I'm gonna really uh, take what is unique and uh, completely uh, violates uh, gender norms. Gonna take what's unique about my identity and I'm gonna play that all the way. I'm gonna embody that. And at that point, one is engaged in the practice of gender queering. Um, so I'm into this idea lately of neuroqueering which is doing the same thing with performance of one's uh, neurology, one's neurocognitive style. And I include gender queering in that. I think it's impossible to, uh, to uh, really uh, um, explore one's unique and bizarre about one's own neurocognitive style without also starting to deviate from other standards of socially accepted performance, like gender. And uh, we're finding now in the autistic population, for instance, that most autistic people are 
gender non-conforming in some way. That there's something about not being neurologically wired for conventional uh, neurocognitive style, conventional uh, neurocognitive performance, embodiment of conventional normal social roles, something about that also means that one just doesn't, doesn't do conventional gender roles unless one painfully forces oneself into them, which I don't recommend doing. And so here I'm querying the uh, medium of public speaking and public performance because I'm going to skip around a little bit. For instance, let's shift and talk about the uh, great mathematician Carl Frederick Gauss. When he was in elementary school, uh, this is a, a famous story among mathematicians. I don't know how famous it is in this room, but when, when young Gauss was in elementary school, his teacher wanted to take a nap. And uh, so he gave the students some busy work to do that he thought would keep them busy for a while. He said, uh, take all of the numbers between one and 100, the, numbers, the whole numbers from one to 100, and add them all up and tell me what the total is so you get it first. Figuring, okay, that'll keep the little bastards busy for a while while I rest. Gauss got it in a few seconds, though. How? Well, everyone else in the class, like the teacher, was thinking about numbers linguistically as a linear sequence. So numbers strung together like words. We do our sentences one word at a time, one concept at a time, and we do our numbers one number at a time. We go through it in a linear fashion. So everyone there is starting at one and then adding two and then adding three to that, adding four to that, and that's going to take a while. Gauss, meanwhile, is a nonlinear thinker. And so he's seeing the whole set of numbers between 1 and 100 at the same time. And so he's in a position to spot patterns that you can't see if you're walking through the numbers in a linear fashion. So he sees the simple pattern if you look at the numbers 1 to 100 all at once in a nonlinear fashion, which your brain might not be wired to do, it's okay. But if you do see them all at once, what you see is that if you add the two numbers at the end, 1 and 100, you get 101. And if you add the two numbers on either side of them, 2 and 99, you get 101. And that keeps going, which means you don't have to add all the numbers. All you have to do is multiply 101 by 50, because there are 50 sets of numbers that add up to 101. You can't see that if you're going through it in a linear fashion. So suddenly there's a creative innovation by an elementary school kid, simply because he's looking at things from a different angle from everyone else, because his brain just happened to be wired to do that. That's an example of neurodivergence uh, creating an opportunity for innovation. Because, of course, that trick went on to become very popular among mathematicians. It turns out there's a lot of other number sets. Any evenly spaced number set uh, can be handled that way. I didn't expect to be giving a math lecture tonight. I think I'll stop that. We have this idea of neurodiversity. We are biocultural beings. I, I feel obliged to use a certain number of buzzwords in any uh, public talk, and so neurodiversity is one buzzword. Um, biocultural, also, right? That's a that's a ten dollar word right there. Biocultural. Um, our brains are uh, a product of natural genetic proclivities. Everyone's brain starts unique from birth, and that can be uh, 
just the ordinary variation among all brains as there's variation, you know, no two sets of fingerprints are alike, no two brains are alike, just the way the neural cells uh, start to divide and multiply and form pathways in the womb, they're all going to be inevitably different from one another. So there's that. But then there are also genetic tendencies uh, as a result often of evolution, of many, many years of evolution and what's been useful to the species and to communities of hunter-gatherers. There are really divergent types of brains, diverging drastically from the norm. Bipolar brains, dyslexic brains, autistic brains, brains that uh, get uh, labeled these days as ADHD. I prefer to call them scout brains because if you're in a hunter-gatherer society, that kind of brain doesn't mean you're disordered. It means you're a good scout. So there's all these different kinds of brains. Naturally, organically, as a result of evolution and genetics, and then each one of us individually, whatever kind of brain we're born with, is shaped right from birth or even starting before birth by our cultural experience, by what's going on around us, and by all our interactions with other people and with the world and by the culture in which we're raised. And that, that is universal. We're universally shaped by our cultural experience. Everything that happens to us and around us, everything we experience, is shaping us, creating new neural pathways, and uh, shaping how we're going to think next time, and making each brain more and more unique, more and more of a unique work of art. So human neurodiversity is a biocultural phenomenon that originates genetically and then is further uh, further diversified by cultural experience. Um, some brains, uh, autistic brains most notably, um, have a certain uh, resistance to um, cultural, to some level of cultural programming, a certain degree of resistance to cultural programming, which is where you, which is where you get you know, autistic people not internalizing cultural gender roles as strongly and being more likely to be genderqueer in one way or another. But that resistance is minor. With autistic brains, uh, sensory experience tends to be a lot louder than cultural experience in one's early days um, and be a bigger factor. It doesn't mean that we are immune to cultural programming. Any autistic person telling you that they're not a product of their culture is kidding themselves because cultural programming is strong and pervasive and uh, so we can't escape it entirely, but we can mess around with it and break free of parts of it and queer it and be creative and start to modify our culture so that we get more say in our cultural experience. So the process of actively deciding that we are going to increase our neurodivergence, that we are going to embody our neurodivergence and play it to the hilt and really explore our brain's potential for weirdness and uniqueness, that is neuroqueering. And that is itself a creative act and an action that creates more potential for creative insight the more we start to say, well, what does my particular brain do? And then this connects us with the process of queering our culture, starting to make creative contributions to the culture. And let's make another shift here shifting now, let's talk about D.W. Winnicott, child psychology pioneer D.W. Winnicott in the mid-20th century. Um, had some lovely concepts, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a great fan. Um, he was a big fan of creativity and the question of how it is that 
people come to be able to make original cultural contributions and be authentically creative. Um, one of his lovely quotes um, is, um, creativity is a healthy state and compliance is a sick basis for life. And uh, I love the contrast there. I love the explicit contrast between creativity and compliance. That true creativity always requires a measure of non-compliance. It requires being outside of one's comfort zone. And that means um, being outside of the cultural comfort zone, being willing to do something or see something or embody something or say something that no one else is doing. And so, non-compliance is necessary. I don't like to say, you know, I mean, non-conformity is a term commonly used, but I, I, I worry that non-conformity has become commodified. You know, that uh, it's important, you know, to identify as a nonconformist. Nobody calls themselves a conformist. You know, it's, you know, it's important to identify as a nonconformist and wear what all the other nonconformists are wearing this year. So I like, uh, like noncompliance. Like, you know, I'm really, um, there are social pressures and cultural pressures to act in certain ways and think in certain ways. There's a conscious decision to not comply with them. Uh, Winnicott says now that there are, uh, we're born and we have a sensory experience. You know, the, uh, we're born, we're infants, uh, and we have this sensory experience of the world around us, and we start to engage with it right away as infants. We start to explore and reach out and play and touch and just uh, indulge our senses. And the relation, in the relationship between our embodied selves and the sensory environment, including caregivers, you know, including relationship with the caregiver, mother figures, and such. In those relationships and our authentic responses to them, we form what Winnicott calls the true self. It's our natural, authentic, non-culturally mediated responses to the sensory world. And uh, then we start to get a little older, or sometimes, usually this process starts very young, there are certain things we're not allowed to do and certain things we're pushed to do. So certain kinds of reaching out, certain kinds of exploration and play, certain kinds of response are discouraged by the adults around us and as we get older by other kids as well, discouraged you know, certain kinds of embodiment, certain processes of exploration certain ways of self-expression that are authentic to us, we're told, no, that's wrong, don't do that. Do this instead. This is the right way to be. And to comply with that in order to uh, be accepted by, you know, especially by the caregivers who are really our whole world when we're infants, um, we start to develop a false self. And that false self continues to develop as we get older and get more and more cultural messages saying this is the way to be, this is the right way to be with the always the implicit or sometimes explicit, oh, and the way, the way you naturally want to be, that's wrong. So, um, so we build this false self. Now, Winnicott said that um, it's the true self that's the source of authentic creativity. I mean, all the false self can really do is comply and imitate, um, you know, and it's, it's subtle. Um, it's a, it can be a very subtle distinction. It sounds very black and white, but um, it's hard to find the true self after growing up being really uh, trained and trained in a deep embodied way 
into playing the role of the false self. And uh, authentic uh, creativity comes from the true self because it comes from authentic responses, authentic, unique individual responses to the world around us rather than trying to play out the way we've been taught to respond to the world around us. Um, there's not really any way to do anything truly original if one is playing a role that one's been taught by the culture, by definition, everything that role can do, everything that false self can do, if it's culturally learned, is already there in the culture in some way or another. One can find new ways to articulate it, maybe something like that, but originality comes from an authentic, deep, visceral, personal response to uh, what one is encountering around one, what one is directly experiencing, and what one does with that experience. It comes from this act of play. At Winnicott was very big on play. Really, that's what the true self does, is it plays. The true self plays with everything. And of course, uh, in childhood, starting very early, we're taught that there are right ways to play and wrong ways to play. And so we're back now, back around in our pattern, in the, the shape of this talk, we're back to um, queering and failure because creativity can be seen as playing the wrong way. It's playing in a way that nobody else is doing. Nobody else is quite playing with it in this way. Um, I will get out of the abstract here and get to a personal story of recent experience about it because I do uh, have a commitment here to staying outside of my comfort zone and disclosing more than I'm comfortable with. So I uh, prided myself, you know, for, I mean, I, I've known all this stuff for a while and been speaking on this stuff for a while. And so, of course, it's very easy to get on an ego trip and think, oh, I've learned this stuff because I can say it to an audience, you know, and sometimes they even applaud. It means I know this stuff. I'm the expert now. So, oh yeah, I'm, <laughs> I've ditched this whole, you know, perform the false self thing. I'm uh, creative and all that. And uh, <laughs> so um, uh, I was, uh, um, I was a very uh, genderqueer child. I was definitely gender non-conforming in childhood. Um, and through um, you know, my, my adolescence. Um, and uh, then I, um, I needed, uh, I guess, starting in late adolescence and through my, my uh, 20s when I was uh, poor and homeless and I kind of, you know, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm struggling with a lot here. I'm poor, I'm, you know, frequently homeless, I'm autistic and can't really manage this whole like work a day job thing. And um, so, uh, so um, I need to find survival strategies. And uh, so one thing that I found uh, worked to protect me really well was to, um, play con the conventional masculine gender role, you know, say, okay, well, I don't have economic privilege, I don't have the privilege of being neurotypical or abled, you know, so I'm autistic and, uh, you know, but uh, maybe I can grab myself a little male privilege at least by not being so gender non-conforming and really, you know, put on some muscle and, you know, find that masculine swagger and start acting like a properly entitled white male here and that'll that'll have some benefit you know and then I can also you know put on that toughness you know I grew up first being bullied a lot and then fighting back and I so I was like okay well this is just kind of a naturally part of fighting back whenever someone tries to push me you know to uh, to play the conventional masculine role and even though I didn't do that in infancy or early childhood, even though I, I thought at first, you know, I, I just got to do this to survive, it's compelling. There's so much 
negative social reinforcement or so much social rejection if one steps outside gender roles, and I was used to that. I wasn't used to the insidious positive reinforcement one gets when one does start playing a standard gender role. And so I spent like 25 years trapped in the, the standard masculine gender role and like playing the, playing the cultural, uh, playing the cultural male gender role, especially in conflict, like going, going super macho. Um, it worked for me as a social survival strategy. You know, I mean, uh, cisgendered male privilege is, is uh, you know, helpful um, socially, but it, it sucks. It's a messed up game to play. I don't recommend it. Um, Anyway, um, fairly recently in my life, I uh, started um, just in the course of doing my work of uh, dropping the armor around my body and learning to loosen up more and more and get outside my comfort zone and explore and play. I started rediscovering my youthful gender queerness, and I was like, oh my god, I've been missing this. I. I can't keep this buried anymore. And I started dropping it. And then I had a situation where um, I almost got into a fight just with a couple of, a couple of uh, guys who were being jerks. And I almost got into a fight with them. And I found myself really playing that macho role again. Um, in a big way, like it instinctively just dropped into like macho intimidate these people role. And it was awful. It felt so bad. It was terrible. I was like, there's no place for this in my life anymore. This isn't who I want to be. be. How did I become this? I, I felt like I just like discovered that I'd become a monster. And, um, so I committed myself to dropping that. I committed myself to uh, ridding myself of uh, toxic masculinity. Um, and it's a work in progress. And I'm getting, you know, more and more genderqueer and enjoying it more and more. And it's such a relief. I mean, I, uh, I feel so much lighter without not carrying all that awful, toxic US white masculinity. Oh my God, it was terrible. Ew, ew. I, I actually literally lost a huge amount of weight just from like not, you know, not care. Somehow like my body like dropped all this weight from not carrying the psychological weight of the toxic masculinity. It helped to not try to build muscle anymore. Like, just I'll let myself be skinny. That's right, I was skinny when I was young and it felt good. You know, I'm, I'm not supposed to be burly. I'm, uh, you know, I don't need that. I don't need all that, all that armor. Um, anyway, getting back to the topic of creativity that I claim to be talking about, um, as soon as I started committed to dropping the toxic masculinity, I got all this inspiration um, you know, and I've been doing academic writing for uh, quite some time now, um, but uh, suddenly I'm writing science fiction. Um, and it's directly connected to dropping the toxic masculinity. I, um, you know, I'm, I've got um, a science fiction webcomic in the works that will launch early next year, and uh, I just, um, over the summer, uh, wrote a 15,000-word science fiction story that's going to be my first published uh, science fiction story. And it's like, oh, I, I couldn't. Um, and, it, and it's very, there's a lot of gender role stuff in that story, too. You know? So I was, I would, it's very directly related. Like, oh, this, this creativity around gender and imagination and such is suddenly liberated by this process of liberating myself from toxic masculinity. And of course, when one liberates oneself from something like that, one is also liberating everyone else around it, around one from having to put up with that stuff. 
So uh, neurodiversity, I'm shifting again here. Neurodiversity is uh, a creative resource. All diversity is. Creative innovation really springs largely from diversity, not just from the uniqueness of individual experience, but also from the interaction of people who are different from one another. So um, great innovations culturally are driven by encounters between people who are different from one another, between different cultures and different individuals. And in order to get the benefit of diversity creatively, diversity has to be embraced and actively engaged with. This is a point that I think is missed. Frequently, I hear a lot of people talk about diversity as a source of innovation in the tech world, in the corporate world. We're looking to have you know, more diverse corporate leadership now or more diverse you know, teams in our, you know, in our tech startup. Um, it's not working. It's not working for them. Um, is what I what I've found. I don't, you know, uh, technology advances in some direction, gets smaller or faster or more expensive or more breakable or more trendy or something, but it doesn't. Uh, um, you know, what's what's really original that's happening? That's you know originally addressing, you know, addressing the world's problems or a culture's problems or a corporation's problems or, you know, in an original fashion. Um, what, what's really new? I mean, we've sort of been trained by capitalism to uh, look at the latest model of the iPhone and be like, ooh, that's new. But it's not really new. It's just building on, you know, uh, building on what was there before and making it a little faster or giving it a few more bells and whistles. Um, it's not. It's not a dramatic shift that gets the world out of any messes or really enriches people's lives or wakes people up or creates more beauty in the world and in our lives. So, uh, what does that? is these encounters in a field of diversity, encounters between people who differ from one another, minds who differ from one another, from one another who are allowed to be different, who are allowed to actually express and embody who they uniquely are. So what I see is people saying, oh yes, we want diversity, we want more people of color in our company, more women on our board of directors. Um, but the catch is, then they're like, but they have to comply with the way we already do things. So it doesn't work that way. You don't get the creative benefits of diversity if you say, oh yeah, you're welcome because your gender is different or your sexual orientation is different or the color of your skin is different from ours and we want diversity, but act more like us, please. That, <laughs> um, you only get the creative benefits of diversity if you're like, yeah, come in and be yourself and we will all figure out how we're gonna adapt to that and how we're gonna work together, being really different from each other. So, that's not done very often. You know, it's within the machinery of capitalist production. You don't see a lot of executives uh, embracing people who are coming in and saying, uh, well, you know, uh, the machinery of capitalist production is awful. Let's uh, do something completely different. Um, so you don't get that benefit. You don't get the same benefit because the people who are already in power, the people who are already executives and managers and um, the people who are in a position to implement policies and who say, oh yeah, we want more diversity, um, they don't want to go outside their comfort zone. 
people who are in a position of power are not very motivated to go outside their comfort zone. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from a, a mid-20th century political scientist named Karl Deutsch, and it's, power is the ability not to have to learn. So those of us who are marginalized in some way or another, be we neurodivergent or people of color or gender nonconforming or gay, whatever it is, um, uh, we have to uh, often find ourselves in positions of having to learn to understand and think like um, the uh, dominant groups in society, but it doesn't go both ways. And, uh, you know, we're, if you are a member of a marginalized group, you're kind of thrust, born, thrust into a society where you're going to be outside your comfort zone most of the time because no one around you thinks like you or no one around you speaks your language or everyone around you is doing their gender roles in ways that don't make sense to you or the police are targeting people who look like you. So the, uh, <clears throat> you know, we get used to being outside of our comfort zones much of the time. The upside of that, of course, is uh, the creativity that we kind of have to find. We have to find a certain uh, trickster creativity, a certain trickster fluidity. Um, there, there's a... Um, Bugs Bunny is a great trickster figure, he said, shifting the topic again. Um, Bugs Bunny was uh, developed um, largely um, uh, by uh, Irish people, people who, uh, Americans of uh, Irish descent, um, and uh, some of Jewish descent. So there were the early animation studios, you had a lot of people of Irish descent, a lot of people of Jewish descent, who at that time were very much considered uh, ethnic minorities. You know, they're, they're, uh, um, they were outside of the sphere of white privilege. You know, this is when, you know, the Holocaust was in full swing and there was, you know, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the U.S. until the Nazis made it look uncool. And, um, you know, the Irish, there had been a lot of uh, anti-Irish sentiment, you know, in the early, very early 20th century. Um, so these were people who were, you know, who grew up as street kids, you know, and very marginalized. And they, they, what they did, they come up with this trickster figure, Bugs Money, who's like always thwarting the like angry old white guy with a gun. And, uh, you know, there's, if you look at, you know, interviews with, the creators, and there's all these old Irish American guys being like, oh yeah, it's very much about like our, you know, our Irish immigrant experience, you know, our parents' experience, our experience as the children of Irish immigrants, you know, and then, um, uh, and then I know, you know, um, uh, being from a Jewish family, uh, a lot of Jews from the generation before me, um, I've met are like, oh yeah, we love Bugs Bunny, we always knew he was Jewish. Um, and uh, a few years ago, I saw an interview with director Spike Lee, and he said that when he was a kid, he always knew Bugs Bunny was black. So there's, a, there's something in there. There's something in that creative trickster. You know, Elmer Fudd has one trick, shoot with gun, and Bugs Bunny is the infinitely adaptable trickster who's always like popping up in drag and stuff. So there's that, like, being marginalized makes you be creative, and any marginalized people can relate to that in some way. And, of course, being neurodivergent, having a brain that diverges very much from the norms, neurocognitive norms in our culture, um, is uh, one way of uh, being... Um, marginalized, and uh, that reminds me, I was going to talk about neurodiversity and creativity. Yeah, so um, 
so neurodiversity, here again, we have a certain part, portion of the population is born neurodivergent. You can also become neurodivergent. All sorts of things can happen to make your brain weirder and weirder, and trauma can do that, and psychedelic drugs can do that, and various spiritual practices can do that. Intentionally doing that, again, is what I call neuroqueering, especially when you start mixing it with queering gender roles and gender performance and such. Um, but uh, for a lot of us, um, it starts out with just how we're born. It starts out being born with brains that are wired differently from the majority. Now there's a reason, you know. There are reasons for this. I mean, evolution works. Human beings, for most of their existence, were not industrial, agricultural beings. We were hunter-gatherers for all the time we were evolving. And we're still kind of evolved to be hunter-gatherers. And now we're struggling because our technology has advanced really fast since the invention of agriculture in an endlessly accelerating way. And so we have hunter-gatherer brains and bodies, hunter-gatherer genetics, because evolution by natural selection happens slower than technological advancement driven by capitalism. So we're, uh, we're you know, primates here, primate hunter-gatherers in this big, loud industrial world that moves, you know, much faster and more, you know, very differently from uh, what we evolved for. And uh, everyone these days seems to be struggling to adapt to it, you know, and I focus a lot on, uh, as an autistic person and someone who talks about neurodiversity a lot, I focus a lot on autistic and other neurodivergent groups, bipolar people, dyslexic people and such, and uh, how we deal with uh, the society and how poorly designed for us it is. But it's not really well designed to accommodate uh, any humans, um, which is funny, because you know we made it. <laughs> we made the world what it is, but uh, we don't fit into it very well. Um, you know, I talk about autistic experience and how the world is uh, too fast and too loud for us and doesn't accommodate us well, but uh, when I do talk about it, I see plenty of non-autistic people and non-neurodivergent people, plenty of neurotypical people nodding and being like, oh yeah, yep, I experienced that too. So uh, the, um, you know, maybe it's more extreme though for neurodivergent people, but we're here as a result of evolution, you know, not by, uh, um, not as a result of some disaster, you know, and it, it's, uh, um, with autism I notice, um, you know, there's a, a trend among people who don't want to deal with the discomfort of uh, coping with human diversity, there's a trend of looking for causes for autism other than evolution by natural selection over very many years. Um, people coming up with all kinds of uh, wild stories about autism being caused by this or that, you know, vaccine or vir environmental toxicity or a cell phone radiation or something like that, you know, and uh, um, for any marginalized group, you see the same thing. When people don't want to deal with an aspect of human diversity, the first thing they want to do is pretend it's not natural. And so they always have built into their creation myths stories about why this group over here is not natural, right? The the Mormons, you know, in the Book of Mormon, there are stories about um, people of color and how they came to be that way, like how how non-white people came to be non-white, you know, because they they can't, uh, um, you know, the Mormons were not uh, comfortable uh, <laughs> acknowledging that uh, humans didn't start out white. Uh, so, you know, they needed a story to explain why 
why God made some people not white and why white was the natural way to be. And, uh, you know, then with uh, homosexuality, you know, uh, there was this period of resistance before, uh, right before the gay rights movement really launched, you know, there was sort of the sense the gay rights movement was coming, you know, there was more and more people starting to come out, and there was a societal resistance to that in the form of uh, the field of psychoanalysis coming up with psychoanalytic explanations for how being gay was a pathology and how it happened, you know, all these like, uh, you know, second and third generation Freudians talking about homosexuality being caused by, you know, overbearing mothers or weak fathers or trying to trace it to this, you know, Freudian style family pathology because um, that was a way of not having to learn, not having to deal with the discomfort of the fact that, yeah, 10 to 15% of the population is gay and deal with it, man, you know, it's, uh, it's natural, it's, it's there in the gene pool and always has been, you know, for as far back as our records go and that's just, you know, uh, people look for their stories, their narratives to avoid embracing diversity, their narratives to convince themselves that this is unnatural and therefore doesn't have to be embraced and doesn't have to be listened to. So always be suspicious of those narratives. Um, there are good evolutionary reasons for variations in human skin color and there are good evolutionary reasons for uh, variations in human brains. It is useful. Right? About 2% of the human population is autistic, and that's worldwide. And um, the people who like to pretend that it's not natural are always looking for evidence that autism is increasing, but the evidence isn't there. Diagnosis of autism as, you know, uh, among people who pathologize autism and diagnose it, diagnosis is increasing. Recognition of autism is increasing. But I see autistics of all ages, you know, just who weren't diagnosed, um, look back in history and see autistic people uh, weren't labeled autistic because the name didn't exist, but they're there. And... Uh, 2% of the population. Well, why? Why? Because it benefited hunter-gatherers. It benefited early human cultures and still benefits cultures if they deal with it well. It benefits cultures to have 2% of the population be autistic. 2% of the population whose perceptions are dramatically different and who are more attuned to sensory experience than to cultural experience. Because you need these people to see things that nobody else in the culture is seeing. And that is a creative resource. Not just a creative resource in that the autistic people get to be creative if they're treated well and accommodated well but a creative resource for the whole community. Everyone else gets the opportunity to wake up and have more creative insight themselves by trying to understand these people who are drastically different from them. That was valuable enough for it to stay in the gene pool worldwide, 2% of the population. It's there for a reason. Um, it works. And I, I trust natural selection. The 2% is there for you get less than 2%. You know, you don't want to have generations with no autistic people. You need them. You also don't want to have a generation where 50% of the population is autistic. Because we, uh, it's easy to get into talking about, you know, neurodivergent people, who, people whose brains are divergent dramatically from, from uh, the standards of society, from what most people's brains are doing, autistic people and dyslexic people and bipolar people. You look at these neurodivergent brains and you're like, oh yeah, this is a specialized brain. It does something really cool, you know? 
dyslexic people, it turns out, just poor dyslexic people, you know, they're named for like the one thing that they can't do well. You know, I mean, dyslexic people, you know, they, they have trouble with written words flat on the page. Well, it turns out the reason for that is they're amazing three-dimensional spatial thinkers, which leads to all kinds of incredible innovation. And there's great dyslexic, you know, artists, sculptors, film directors, um, uh, writers because of the capacity to uh, do things in their mind in 3D and perceive things um, often great. I can oft often tell dyslexic people just by how they move because they manage three-dimensional space so well. So of course we name them for the one thing that's hard for them. But these are, you know, we look at the great things they can do. We look at bipolar, we can look at bipolar people and take a non-pathologizing view and say, well, there's these this enormous creativity that comes with a bipolar brain. It's hard to manage the rhythms of a bipolar brain. It's hard to manage those ups and downs, but there's enormous creativity that comes with it if one learns how to work with those rhythms. Um, um, but, you know, I don't want to marginalize the dominant groups either. Um, I don't want to get into that narcissistic thing of, oh yeah, well, autistic people are just, you know, better. We have these great talents, you know, and uh, I mean, you know, there's a reason that the majority of the population is more or less heterosexual or can at least enjoy heterosexual relationships or whatever, because that keeps the population going, you know. You need people who are not as well are important, um, but, you know, Heterosexuals are valuable, you know, because if there weren't any, the population would be a lot smaller. Um, and uh, so there's the, neurot the neurotypical brain. You know, neurotypical is when your brain is pretty much like, uh, works more or less like the majority. You know, you're wired. You can, re you walk into a room full of people and you can pretty much count on being wired like most of the other people in the room enough that you're having roughly the same sort of sensory experience as everyone else. And, um, you know, you're not autistic, you're not anything that anyone's gonna stick any particular label on. Well, um, uh, neurotypical people are awesome too. This is important to note, you know, because of course uh, we talk about how, uh, you know, autistic people have these amazing insights because they're, you know, they have this very intense, rich sensory experience that uh, is louder than their cultural experience and it lets them uh, see things outside of the cultural box sometimes, you know, or bipolar people have their own unique rhythms that are different from the cultural rhythms and that again leads to interesting uh, spurts of creativity. You know, there's, um, uh, there's all these gifts that we talk about, potential creative gifts of neurodivergent people. Um, there's a reason that most of the population is what we call neurotypical. Um, because those are actually specialized brains too. Those are brains that are wired for culture. They're wired to pick up and adapt to whatever culture they're born into and whatever culture is around them. They're super versatile. Uh, they're really underrated. It's funny to say that, you know, because, you know, I've been speaking, writing about the neurodiversity paradigm for a long time and saying, well, you know, neurotypical people pathologize neurodivergent people and say, you know, say that any brain that isn't neurotypical is damaged and defective and wrong. And, um, but I don't want to go the other direction uh, either. Um, what has made us a successful uh, species, I mean, we uh, very rapidly, in terms of the geological time, in terms of the history of life on Earth, when humans came onto the scene, we very quickly became the terrifying dominant predator species on the planet. Um, we're a very successful species. I mean, we might get so successful that we destroy everything. Um, 
you know, there's, uh, we're, still, we're still operating according to evolutionary programs that don't really work well once you've actually won the race to be the dominant species. But how did we become such a successful species when we're small and don't have big teeth and claws and all that? Mostly by working together, mostly by being able to form complicated cultures and transmit complicated cultures to our offspring and work together. And that requires neurotypical brains. So in the glue that holds human culture together is about most people being neurotypical. And then within a mostly neurotypical society, you need neurodivergent people as well to help break you out of the cultural trance so you don't get into it too deep. And of course, there's neurodiversity within neurotypicals too. It's not like, oh, everyone is normal except for autistic people and uh, bipolar people and dyslexic people and other neurodivergent people. That's not how it works. Everyone's brain is unique and anyone can queer their brain. Neuroqueering is for anyone. Anyone can find what is quirky and unique and bizarre about their individual brain and start to embody it and play with it. And this, is a physical process. This is the point on which I think I'm going to wrap up because there's so much to say and uh, it would take a long time to say it if I tried to say it all. So I'm going to uh, say this, which is creativity uh, is an embodied process. It is an embodied process of engaging and playing with the world in a living, original, authentic way. And in order to really find our creativity and tap into it, as individuals, it is necessary to find how we embody it to recover. What did we do when we were babies and everything was a creative act? When we were small children, everything was creative because every experience was new and we were finding original ways that we'd never seen anyone do before to play with everything around us. And learning the false self, putting on the armor of the false self is a physical process of rigid muscular armoring. Because when we learn, oh, it's wrong to reach out and touch this, and it's wrong to play this way, we have these impulses to reach out and play with everything. That's creativity. And so it requires muscular effort, learned in childhood, to hold back from it. And you can see it in small children. If you have small children or work with small children, um, you can see when they've learned they shouldn't do something, how they like will start to reach for something and remember they shouldn't and physically hold themselves back and eventually it becomes automatic. So where the gesture to reach out and play in certain ways, the gesture to the full body gestures, certain kinds of movement never start because there are rigid, rigid bonds of muscular armor that we carry habitually that keep us from playing in certain ways, even from breathing in certain ways that will allow us to feel certain things. This is what uh, somatic psychology pioneer Wilhelm Reich called character armor. And so this de-armoring, breaking that down and breaking free of it is an essential part of creativity. And that starts to change your brain. You start moving in a way that you haven't moved since you were a baby or that you've never moved. Start breaking free of the armor and opening up and letting yourself reach out and feel the world more and breathe it deeper. And your brain starts to change too. And creativity starts to wake up. And I'm urging everyone to try it, to do it, to go forth and open up and start moving in new ways and reaching and playing, letting yourself play and notice your impulse to not. Notice your impulse, no, no, that would look silly. No, no, I can't just play with this. What's the point? You know, to notice that impulse, notice where that impulse lies in your body and override it and say, oh, heck with this, I'm gonna play. And that's where creativity starts. As a culture, our creativity starts with allowing that. 
a more creative culture is a culture that is more accepting of wildly divergent forms of play and embodiment. Because you can't really have true, full expression of neurodiversity and all its creative glory without full expression of embodiment in all its creative glory. You can't let people, you can't expect people to be their creative best in a culture that doesn't allow them to move the way they need to move. I'll tell you one closing story, which is, uh, um, you know, a lot of autistic people don't do a lot of eye contact because um, it's a lot of information. You know, we take in huge amounts of sensory information, boom, and there's so much in eye contact, so it becomes uncomfortable very quickly. So uh, if we want to be able to do language and do all our other stuff, we, you know, eye contact is too much of a distraction, and so we, you know, don't do it. And uh, so there was a, um, I knew an autistic uh, uh, computer uh, genius who's an amazing, um, just amazing with anything computer related, and he was um, uh, working at a company, you know, where he would, uh, you know, they hired him to do all this, uh, you know, get all get the whole system working, you know, work your magic, and uh, but then he had this manager who always wanted eye contact. The manager had been taught, as many people are taught, that if your employee is truly paying attention, they will make eye contact with you when you talk to them. Now, of course, he would come and demand eye contact from the employee, you know, and the, the poor autistic programmer, the you know, programmer would be so distracted by the eye contact, it would take him like two hours to get back into work mode. So nothing was getting done. So finally, he's like, I'm just going to focus on doing what I'm doing. And the manager comes by and is like, can you look at my eyes when I'm talking to you? you know? And my friend says, look, do you want eye contact or do you want your damn machines to work? So, um, embody your creativity, whatever your body needs to do. Make eye contact, don't make eye contact. Play, touch things, feel things, smell things. Enjoy the world, enjoy being in your body. And accept other people doing it. Try to create an environment around you. Anytime that you're in a position in life where it's safe for you to be fully embodied in your weirdness, do it because that helps to create a safer space for other people to do it. Thank you all very much. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. The audio engineer for this episode was Ramdas Khalsa. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. 